Welcome to the Be Brave podcast, where ordinary, badass, brave women speak their stories of courage and strength. We hope that by hearing the struggles and successes of women just like you, it will help you be brave. Please note that the Be Brave podcast does cover adult topics that include overcoming adversity in areas of sexual abuse, addiction, depression, and other difficult experiences. Tonight, we have Dr. Paula Stone-Williams with us, and we found Paula from an article in the Tampa Bay Times, which was reprinted from the Washington Post, and I just need to read the headline of this article because it just totally grabbed me. Once an evangelical pastor, a transgender woman is on a mission to empower women, and we love empowering women here on the Be Brave podcast. Paula Stone-Williams is a pastoral counselor and internationally known speaker on gender equity, LBGTQ advocacy, and religious tolerance. She lives in Lyons, Colorado. Paula has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, TED, ABC, NPR, PBS, News Scientist, People Magazine, and many other media outlets. Her TED Talks have had over 9 million views. Paula's memoir, As a Woman, What I Learned About Power, Sex, and the Patriarchy After I Transitioned, was published by Simon Schuster in 2021. Welcome, Paula. It's good to be with you. Welcome, Paula. We're so glad to have you with us. And I'm going to read a quote to you that we read to all of our guests. One day, you will tell your story of how you've overcome what you're going through now, and it will become part of someone else's survival guide. We know that you are a huge survivor, and we are so excited to share your story with our listeners. I wanted to ask you, you know, it says in your book and in your TED Talk, one of your TED Talks, I know you have many of them, that at three or four years old, you knew that you should have been born a woman. And that sounds like such a heavy burden for a three or a four-year-old to carry with them. And maybe it wasn't a burden for you. Maybe at three or four years old, you just had wonder and awe and curiosity about it. I know through reading about you, though, that you might have been shamed by your mom for dressing up with your cousins in girl clothes. And I'm just curious, was it a burden for you? Did it become a burden? Or how did you feel when you were a child knowing that you were born in the wrong body? You know, that's not language I generally use. A different body. Yeah, thank you. And I'm really not sure why I don't generally use that language, but maybe because it's very traditional language. I think every one of us has our own story. In my case, I did know from the time I was probably four. I know the the time frame because I know the house we lived in and I know when we moved out of that house. And I thought it was pretty simple. And I think about it now, it was really white male entitlement Um, because, you know, uh, little white boys from the right side of the tracks do pretty much everything they want. And so I just somehow thought I got to choose my gender. It just seemed like something you ought to be able to do. And so it was like, well, okay, that'll happen before kindergarten. And of course, I know what I'll choose when the time comes. And then, of course, kindergarten began and it didn't happen. And I was not one of those children who was devastated at that. It was like, huh, okay, well, I'm not really crazy about that. I didn't mind being a boy. I just knew I wasn't one. And so for me, I just kind of lived my life. It was not for me a real traumatic experience, just the ones that my mother was. But on the whole, it wasn't all that traumatic. We know that a lot of trans children have a very different experience from that. In fact, I have a neighbor here whose daughter said the first phrase she ever spoke and was identified male at birth. But the first phrase she ever spoke was, mommy, I a girl. And there are children, in fact, who are that way from the very beginning. They tend to be extremely effeminate. They tend to come out very early. They are adamant with their parents that they are not the gender on their birth certificate. They will not have it any other way. And they tend to transition as soon as they possibly can. Um, This we know. And we're not actually sure what the causation is that causes someone to have gender dysphoria. But we know that there are really two separate groups when it comes to male to female. 
that one group identify extremely early and adamantly as female. The others may have an experience like mine where they don't have a time, they don't remember it, but they also may find that they're 10 or 11 before it really strikes them. And that particular group generally doesn't hate being a boy. They just know they're not one. For me, it didn't become a problem until puberty. And that's really when it became a pretty strong issue for me. I love that you thought you were going to be able to choose your gender. It sounds like such a fascinating childlike endeavor. Like I get to choose like a child with all the curiosity and wonder and knowing that they just get to choose whatever they want to be and have in life. I love that you thought you were going to be able to choose that. So tell us then how that transformed when you hit puberty. What what started to happen? What started, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? Well, first of all, it's junior high school, so that's just a hellish experience for any human. <laughs> Hell yeah. And then you add to that <laughs> that your body's not changing in the way all the other bo- boys' bodies are changing. And all your friends who are girls have bodies changing in the way you desperately want yours to change. And so seventh, eighth, ninth grade were not particularly pleasant, nor the early part of 10th grade. We moved from Ohio to Kentucky when I was in the 10th grade. And there, I found it much easier. I would say that it didn't go away. I mean, it was there every single day, but it wasn't quite as much of a problem during the high school years, the latter part of the high school years and my college years. It didn't really come back with a vengeance until much later in my life. You know, uh, in reading your book, you made mention of how you would watch girls your age when you were going through puberty, go through puberty themselves and their bodies were changing. You're like so envious, I guess. Oh, wow. I wish my body would change like that. But then knowing that the girls were not thrilled with the changes that were happening with their bodies. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I mean, I look at my own granddaughters who are all, I have five granddaughters, they're all between uh, 12 and 14. And oh, yeah, it's really fascinating to watch them just, they're mortified by the changes taking place in their bodies. And of course, that's not how I fantasized it as a child. Uh, I discovered as an adult that that's very true for the vast majority of girls. Yeah, it's it's awkward for both sexes yeah. when they're going through puberty. I want to go back to what you said about the group of those who are transgender who know, like, you know, an early age. And it might have been just the pronouns you chose to use. I'm wondering, is it more boys that know and are very adamant, or you just chose to use, you use those pronouns, and I wasn't sure. No, it is primarily boys. It is, okay. Uh, that have that experience. We really don't know, no matter what anybody tells you, we do not know what causes gender dysphoria at this point. But it is a pretty fascinating study, and a lot more studies are being done. But we do know that there is this certain class that are identified male at birth and are very adamant and can become extremely, extremely depressed early in life, much earlier than you would normally see with a child if they are not able to live out the gender they identify as. These kids, like I said, tend to transition early. Another interesting thing is that they virtually always are attracted to men and to straight men, not gay men. And that is significantly different than my segment of the population that transitioned later. Will you repeat that for us, Paula? I Yeah, say that for us again. Sexual identity and gender identity, of course, are two different things. Gender identity is who you want to go to bed as. Sexual identity is who you want to go to bed with. And so what we see with this particular subset of children is that once their sexual identity becomes quite clear to them, they are almost always attracted to straight males. And so you take a look at my segment of the population. Most of us who did not identify quite so adamantly that way as children. In our situation, it was a little bit later that it became intolerable to live in a male body. About 70% of us are attracted to women, to cis women. And so that that's significant. We don't know exactly what it means. We don't know if there's different causation between the two groups. We don't even know if it's two different groups. There was one professor at Northwestern who's done some fairly serious study on the subject, but unfortunately got himself in trouble with not just the trans community, but the broader academic community because of how he presented that information. And so his information has been resoundingly rejected. When I think there are a number of us who are just intrigued by it because we just really don't know. There are not many good studies being done on the causation of gender dysphoria, which is what the DSM-5 causes, that are out there. 
most of the good ones that have been done are have been done in Scandinavia, in Northern Europe for the most part. And that's because they can get funded there. They don't get funded here because here it's really quite a, a political hot button. Oh, amen. Yeah. Well, yeah, it needs funding and it needs it needs buy-in that it's really something legitimate that needs to be looked at right? instead of, I don't even know the number of things that, you know, could be said about it otherwise, but it is, it, it's something that needs to be researched. There was a study done of over 25,000 trans folks in 2017, but it was just a survey. It was not in any way, shape or form scientific. And it gave us a fair amount of information. It gave us zero information on causation. Interesting. I'm not a clinician. I can't imagine how you would go about that, but yeah. You know, at this point, we have a pretty good idea that it is prenatal. And for quite a while, we thought it was likely prenatal and not genetic. A prenatal in that in the first trimester, a body begins, all bodies begin as female, and then half, roughly half, will receive an androgen wash at causes the body to become male. And that happens in the first trimester of pregnancy. But the brain's connection to the body that's created does not actually happen until the third trimester of a pregnancy. And so the assumption is that something happened in the second trimester that causes the brain to not make the appropriate connection with the body that has been created. Interesting. We don't know exactly what it is. We know that there are Certain drugs that were used between the 1930s and 1970s that caused the males, identified males of those mothers, to have a 30% higher chance of being transgender, which is not nothing. That's a significant number. Sure is. And that was stopped in the 1970s, so that's not something that could be a cause from this point going forward. But it was an issue, likely, for people who were born between the time the drug came out, roughly 1930 until the mid-70s when it was taken off the market. We did not think initially that it was genetic, but a very small but rather definitive study was done not long ago of 43 sets of twins. 21 of the sets were fraternal twins. 22 of the sets were identical twins. What put all 43 sets of twins in the study was that at least one of the children was transgender. With the paternal twins, there were no other transgender twins. If one of them was trans, the other one was not. In the identical twins, which was 22 of them, so out of 21 fraternal twins, 21 of the twins identified as transgender, 21 definitely did not. Of the identical twins, 22 pairs, nine in nine pairs, both identified as transgender. Wow. So that really caused us all to think, well, that actually would definitely point in the direction of potentially a genetic cause, although it doesn't rule out prenatal, but it makes it less likely. It makes genetic more likely. Uh, But the truth is that was one small study, and we really don't know. We do know that it's not determined after birth. We do know that no no amount of bad parenting uh, can cause a person to be transgender. <laughs> it is, in fact, either prenatal or it is genetic. It worries me when you say it might be prenatal because I just think of the propensity to possibly blame the mother because she's the one carrying the child. That That's just what comes to my head mm-hmm. based on how crazy some people's thoughts can be. You know, there are a number of conditions where the brain does not develop a connection to the body that has been created. Uh, One of the not uncommon ones is for a brain to not identify one of the limbs of the body, either the arm or a leg. And to the brain, that is a foreign object. So imagine if you had a log sticking out of your chest pretty much all day, every day, you would be saying, your brain would be saying to you, there's a log sticking out of your chest. And that's exactly how the brain feels about this limb that is there, that should be there. But for some reason, the brain never made a connection to that limb. There are nations in the world that will actually remove that limb, even though there's nothing wrong with the limb. And in those nations, they've discovered that it immediately quiets down the brain. But the incredible psychological distress that the person experienced throughout life, because the brain was constantly having a terrible disconnect with the limb that was there. As soon as that limb was gone, the brain was just fine. Also interesting that if you remove the limb of one of those people, they do not have a phantom limb. 
if you were I lost one of our limbs, we would have a phantom limb, which means our brain would still identify the limb as being there, even if it wasn't there. So the assumption, probably a strong word. So what we wonder is, is it possible that something similar is going on with people who are, have gender dysphoria? Nobody better to answer that question than you, Paula. Ah, but I'm one, you know, and that's what I always remind people. I, you know, I am one single transgender person, so sure. you'll get different thoughts from different folks, but that is in fact a fact. And so we do know that that is a possibility, that it is something, that something happens within the second trimester. To answer your other question a little bit, uh, whatever it is, we have zero indication that it's anything the mother could have done anything about other than with that one particular medication that was out from the 30s to the 70s. And of course, no one knew at the time. It was a medication to stop miscarriages. So all things being equal, I think those of us whose mothers received it would rather our mothers had taken the medication, even if in fact it did have some impact on us being trans. We wouldn't be here otherwise. Agreed. Paula, did you deal with depression at all throughout your life, struggling? I mean, here you are in front of us. You have um, No. I, I would say I did not deal with depression related to gender dysphoria until maybe 14 or 15 years ago. I did have a bout of moderate depression back in 2003. It's the only episode I've had of it. It lasted about six months. It was absolutely awful. As a psychotherapist, uh, I always thought, well, you know, there's severe depression, there's moderate depression, there's mild depression, there's dysthymia, which is very mild depression, but ongoing. And when I would read about moderate depression, I would think, well, I, maybe it's not all that bad. Moderate depression is like moderate turbulence on an airplane. It is not something you want to experience. A severe depression is when you cannot get out of bed, period, when people have to feed you, when you are barely able to function at all. With moderate depression, you're able to get up, you're able to go to work, but you can take zero joy in life. And so mm. I did experience that, but I think that was primarily chemical and had very little, if anything, to do with my gender dysphoria. It was my depression once I did get to the point where I knew I needed a transition. I would say then the depression was more existential. It was more caused by specifically by my gender dysphoria. That kind of depression is not going to be helped by medication. The kind I had in 2003 is often helped by SSRIs or many other types of medication. Understood. So Paula, would you mind taking us through your life? I'm, we, Karen and I know you through our research of you, but our listeners don't know you. So can you take us from your three or four-year-old to getting married, having a career as a tall, white male, which is such a minority group, but such the majority of the C-level executives in this country, and then having children and grandchildren, and then deciding to live your truth and to today. Can, do you mind taking us through that? Sure. My father was a pastor, so I was raised in the church in an evangelical church at that in Ohio, Kentucky, and West Virginia, and went to a Christian university and then went to seminary. I'm married very young. I was 29, Kathy, or 21. Kathy was 19. And then four years later, we had Jonathan, our firstborn. JL, we adopted from Calcutta, India. Three years after that, that's spelled J-A-E-L-J-L. And then Jaina came 15 months after that, also biologically ours. After seminary, we moved to upstate New York. From upstate New York, after six years there, I moved to Long Island, where we were for over 30 years. And I became the CEO of a very large religious nonprofit. It was very small when I started there, a budget of about 160000 worked just in Long Island. By the time I left, we had a budget of $4 million and we worked worldwide. And I left that organization and, uh, well, moved in 2006 to Colorado, left the organization in 2013. I've always been a bit of a renaissance person, so I've always done lots of additional things as well. So for 25 years, I was an adoption caseworker. I also was a, a host of a national television show that was on TV in 70 markets for 11 years. I also was the editor-at-large of a national magazine that had been published every Sunday since 1866, whether it should have been or not. <laughs> uh, I also was uh, the president of a company that operated homes for individuals with developmental disabilities. So I've always done a lot of things, and pretty much everything I touched turned to gold. And I think like most well-educated, successful white men, you know you've worked really hard to get where you are. You have no idea 
but you started far closer to the finish line than anyone else. That's something you're just clueless about until you no longer have that privilege. And the truth is, I will not live long enough to lose my white male entitlement. I know I brought it with me when I transitioned, but oh my goodness, I've seen it lessened immeasurably uh, since transitioning. But I, uh, all of those things were my work. I was in a very good marriage, enjoyed raising my children. I very much enjoyed being a father. Those were probably the years when my gender dysphoria went under the back burner for almost all of that period. I loved being a dad, still do. My kids still call me dad most of the time, too, which is a little odd in public, but, you know, it is what it is. Then um, the gender dysphoria just got stronger and stronger and stronger until I knew I really had little little option but to transition. So when I did that, I lost all of my jobs uh, within seven days. In all 50 states of the U.S., you cannot be fired for being transgender, but in all 50, you can't be fired if you're transgender and you work for a religious corporation. Mm-hmm. How good to know. So within seven days, I'd lost all those jobs. I'd been with the large nonprofit for 35 years. I had never had a bad review. We were one of the two largest in the nation at what we did. And I was gone from there within seven days. I lost my pension there, which was worth about a million dollars. I had loaned half a million dollars. How could that even be? And I actually had to threaten a lawsuit to get the half a million back. So you you got it back. I got uh, about 385000 Because you earned that. Uh, well, not the pension. I mean, the pension, I did not get. They were able to pull it. They couldn't legally pull it. And so they did. Wow. I got $60,000 of it. Actually, I rarely talk about that. I don't even know if that's in the book. I think I got $62,000 of it. But, you know, given that it was worth a million, that was really not even enough to comment on. Wow. And then in the three eighty-five that I got back was extremely important because in my first 48 months as Paula, I earned a total of $23,000. So roughly $6,000 a year over the next four years. So had I not gotten that money back, I would have been in big trouble. Kathy, my wife at the time, uh, was in school to switch careers from being a school teacher to being a psychotherapist. So she was not bringing in income at the time. So yeah, if we had not gotten that back, we'd have been in big trouble. Well, once they transitioned, uh, Kathy and I stayed together for about a year. And then we decided to split up after that. Uh, we are still legally married for a lot of reasons, primarily financial, but we no longer consider ourselves uh, to be married. And we do still work together. Uh, we both are psychotherapists and have our own company that we own. We get along quite well. We're leaving on vacation together tomorrow. We parent our children and our grandchildren together. But like our wonderful marriage therapist said to us on our very last day with him years and years ago, right before I transitioned, he was brilliant. Mike Solomon was his name, perfect name for a wise man. And he retired and we were his last clients on his last day. And so we're both therapists. So I just asked him, I said, Mike, how many couples are willing to work this hard? And without hesitation, he said one person. And I said, how many couples got this far? And working through their stuff. And again, without hesitation, he said 1%. And then he said, which is what makes this so tragic, because you're a lesbian and Kathy's not. And I think that was the day we realized that our marriage was over. So we live about 20 minutes apart from each other. She's here you know, a few times a week. Our office is here. So she sees clients here. And uh, she continues to do her work as a psychotherapist. I found myself back in ministry, which actually surprised me a lot. That that happened, given how the church treated me. I had known probably five to 10,000 people by name in my denomination of 7,000 churches. I was one of its national leaders. Wow. And since transitioning, I've had substantive conversations with exactly six of those people. I'd say I probably knew four or 5,000 by name. Oh, Paula. And I've had substantive conversations with six of them. Wow. Uh, but five years ago, uh, we started a new post-evangelical church here in Boulder County, Colorado. I pastor that church. I still work as a psychotherapist, and I also am in town government. I ran for public office here in Boulder County, and so I'm a member on the town board in the little town in which I live. I am also very involved in uh, really a bunch of other things. Again, I've always been a bit of a Renaissance person. At this point, my major income comes from public speaking, which I do worldwide, which is basically based on that very first TED Talk. Uh, I also am a coach for TED. I'm a, a speaker's coach for the largest TEDx in North America, which happens to be located here in Denver. I'm also a speaker's ambassador for TED itself. I've done four TED Talks all together. So those are what would be on the international speaking circuit. So that is, at this point, my major source of income. That's my story. On, on your website, Paula, I saw three TED Talks. Do you have more than that? The fourth was not recorded. Oh, boo. Purposefully. Okay. Well, I just want to tell our listeners that if they could go to your website and I'm, is it paulastonewilliams.com? 
or they can just go to ted.com. They can find it that way too. If they just type in Paula Williams. But you have three TED Talks that are 15 minutes or under each of them. And they are all fantastic. I would highly recommend them. And one is with your son. And I was just so blown away that you both, you basically gave each of your side of what it was like when you transitioned. It was, it was a great, great story. That's that's awesome. Yeah, the fourth TED Talk was done at the TED Summit in Edinburgh in 2019. I think they had about maybe 90 of us there as, as speakers uh, who'd spoken over the last four or five years. So maybe what, 10% of the speakers, I imagine. And they asked eight or nine of us to do just a five-minute talk on something we would not ever want recorded. <laughs> and so it, was so much, it was so much fun. And it was only done for the other speakers. It was delightful. I talked about the difference between experiencing sex as a man and sex as a woman. Oh, man. But then I ended up writing about it in the book. It's chapter 21 of the book. So, you know, now, now oh, it's it out is? there. Okay, the great. <laughs> I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I will not be doing a TED Talk on it. It's just... No, I can totally understand why you wouldn't want that um, <laughs> recorded. <laughs> It's so funny. And it's something I wouldn't ask you on the podcast because I think that'd be too personal, but I'm looking forward to reading it. <laughs> when I think about it, I don't think any of the interviewers, the only exception, which would be understandable, was People Magazine wanted to know about that. And I happened to have been in a relationship at the time, and they also wanted to know who that was, and it was not a public relationship. So, so yeah, I had to be really adamant with them. But everybody else, all the network TV, all the major newspapers, all the NPR shows, they, they all were very respectful about that. And none of them went there. Yeah. Good. Well, we won't either then. <laughs> I would not have answered their questions. <laughs> Paula, can you tell us, like, you know, I'm just imagining, I'm making up all kinds of stories based on your story of what it must have been like to face Kathy and your three children and tell them, did, do you think that over the years you were able to share any of these, not do you think, over the years, were you able to share any of these feelings of, I'm going to say, oppressing your true self, if that sounds right to you, with your family? You know, I, I grew up in evangelical Christianity. And in that world, there is no sin worse than sexual intercourse before marriage. And so we were very dutiful Christian children. And I had somehow become quite convinced that once I did enjoy sexual intimacy, that I would be cured, that I would no longer be trans. That was the narrative I'd created in my mind. And when that did not happen, very quickly, I told Kathy. And so she knew it fairly early in our marriage, but nobody knew anything back then. This is the 1970s. And I was very committed to not transitioning. Didn't want to do that to her or to my children or to myself, for that matter. I knew that it would end my life as I knew it. And so she knew it all along. The children did not know it because I did not intend to transition. And it wasn't until I realized that I really didn't have much of a choice that I, I might not survive if I didn't transition. That's when we told the children. And there was not one tiny ounce of me that had been effeminate at all. No one had any idea. I was the quintessential white American male. And it was particularly difficult for my son, of course, because it made him question, did he know anything at all about what it even means to be a man, uh, given that that was a reality. So he pretty much disappeared for about a year. The girls stayed very close in that first year. But then they had their own time of needing to pull away. And my middle daughter, Jonathan and Jaina, and I, my youngest, were on Jada Pinkett Smith's Red Table Talk. And JL, my middle daughter, was not on that show. And about a year, about, for about a year after that, she, she pulled away for a while. And about a year before that, my youngest, Jaina, had pulled away for a while. But they both needed their space to be able to deal with their uh, really residual anger about it. You know, I explored the family narrative. But Jonathan, of course, it was immediate and was a little bit longer. It was uh, maybe 18 months or so. Both of us always kind of forget now exactly how long it was that we were alienated from each other. Mm -hmm. Wow. So much to um, think about, so much to process, even for me. Yeah, I should say that um, until I uh, was getting ready to transition, exactly three people on earth were aware of it. My therapist, my wife, and my best friend of 40 years, who was also a therapist. Yeah, that's, well, it, it, from what I've read about you, Paula, it I get you, you were so committed to not transitioning for the longest time. 
Right. So I would imagine if you didn't want to admit that, then to yourself, why would you want to admit that to anybody else? It's scary. Well, I could admit to myself that I was trans, but I still had no intention of actually transitioning. I thought I would be able to get by. And if there's any way I could have, I would have. Mm-hmm. That's just not something, if you love your family, you want to put them through. And some of my family members now talk about how they would not have had the courage to live their own lives if I had not transitioned, but not all of them feel that way. I love that. You you know, you you are expressing the ultimate in courage, which is what Karen and I talk about, of living your own truth. And having the courage to face that must have been difficult. What was it that brought you to the point that you said, I, I'm not going to survive? I think you said it earlier, I'm not going to survive if I don't do this. What was the catalyst? What was the emotion? What were you feeling that pushed you over the edge to make that decision? You want to go back to your earlier point. Not everyone would look at it as courage or bravery. I receive correspondence every week, just yesterday. And yesterday was actually the rare one. Most of them are just hate speech. Yesterday was a rather thoughtful letter on just how incredibly selfish I was to transition. So they did not see it at all as courageous. I would say 95% of the time, maybe 99 Those are evangelical Christians who respond that way. And of course, 84% of evangelical Christians believe gender is immutably determined at birth. And 61% of them believe we already give trans people too many civil rights. And yet only 25% actually actually know someone who's out as a trans person. But not everybody sees it that way. So in my case, it was getting worse and worse. And I was recognizing it. My therapist was recognizing it. Kathy was recognizing. And I was really in, in... a constant state of dysthymia, which is very low-grade depression related to it. And I had an experience that was um, mystical. I was watching my favorite television show of all time, Lost, and it was the final season. And I always say to anybody who was a Lost fan, uh, it was a particular episode of it, the episode when Jack, the protagonist of the story, is at the lighthouse and realizes he's been called by the God figure, Jacob, to die. And that second I realized I'd been called to die, to figuratively die to die in terms of transitioning. And I sobbed until about three in the morning and then fell asleep on the floor and then woke up at about five and sobbed again until dawn. And that was it. I knew I had been called. And it was the call from God. I don't know. I I mean, I I believe in God most days of the week, except for Tuesdays and Thursdays and any day I'm on the New Jersey turnpike. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it, it, I, it, I would say it was certainly a mystical experience. It was a very strong sense of God. And I think that's what gave me the courage. The primary courage, however, came from Kathy herself, as you'll see in the book when you finish it, that there came a point in which she said, you you have to do this. She sounds like an amazing woman. Um, she is. I mean, she's human. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Aren't we all? Uh, yeah, a lot of people who know her well, including my children, say you were very kind to her in the book. I mean, so yeah, she's not perfect, but yeah, she's she is a loyal, good human all day, every day. I could see why you were in love with her. I, I say worse. Yep, still am. Yeah, exactly. That should be present tense. Yeah, it's it's not uh, not something that she feels, but I certainly do. I mean, for me, it's compatible with my sexual identity. You know, for her, it's not. So, yeah. We've each been in at least one relationship post-transition, and I found it easier to be able to deal with that with her or with somebody else than she found it uh, to be able to do with me. Paula, I have this question for you. I'm a CEO of a business that's a man's world. I own a strength training studio. And so I heard recently just about the tall white male in America and how so many doors are open for that tall white male, even though they're the minority of people. Tall white males over six feet are not a majority of the population, but yet they hold the majority of the C-suite positions in America. So you were one of those males. You went from that minority of having doors open for you well before, in your words, well before you even knew that was a thing, to being the complete and total, I'm imagining, because I'm not in your shoes, but I'm imagining the complete and total opposite minority, where doors are closed 
just because that you're a trans. You said you lost all of your jobs in seven days. What, what can you speak on that for us? Sure. I actually don't think I lost much because I'm trans. I certainly lost all of my opportunities within evangelical Christianity. But outside of that, I don't feel like I've really lost any opportunity because I'm trans. A lot of that is because the world receives me pretty much 100% of the time as a female. Uh, so even though I'm tall, people generally do not know that I'm trans unless I tell them. And so that makes it much, much easier for me than it does for a trans woman who does not pass and is seen as a trans woman. I mean, I see it all the time. Their lives are much more difficult than mine. So I am extremely fortunate that way. So my experience is probably a little bit closer to a cis female experience, though I always say when I'm speaking to any group that I know I come from the borderlands between genders. I come from the liminal space between genders. I always say what I've already said here, that I will not live long enough to lose my white male privilege. But that said, I have an experience in the work world that is extremely similar insofar as I can ascertain to most well-educated white cis females in the Western world. Uh, my experience is very similar to theirs, and it is maddening. <laughs> All day, every day, every week, there's a new opportunity to be really, really pissed with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> you you had stated that you lost confidence in, in this transition. So I, I thought that maybe that was a piece of it, but we, I'd love to hear just one maddening example. Sure. I was just talking with my speaker's agency the other day, and we're talking about the offerings that I'll give to corporations, companies, conferences for 2023. And one of the new talks I'm going to be giving is on resilience. And one of the whole areas that I'm going to be speaking on, I've not spoken on much to this point, and that is that women do not get a free pass. In my life as a female, I have had people point out what I, as a therapist, call our abiding shadows. Everybody has strengths. And then generally our weaknesses are our strengths taken to an extreme. So they are our shadow side. And we all tend to have some personality traits that stay with us throughout life, no matter how hard we work on them. But the only thing we can hope to do is to recognize them, to identify them as soon as they make their way out of the basement and put them back down there and lock the door <laughs> yet again. In my case, I make my money primarily by speaking. Speaking is something that's always come natural to me. I was a television host for 11 years. I was in radio for seven years. I do interviews all the time. I'm maybe doing some work, Yeah, I several podcasts for NPR this year. Speaking has been very good to me. And so, you know, as you can expect, my abiding shadows tend to always be along the line of needing to speak to myself, Paula, it's all right to have an unexpressed thought. <laughs> because I seem to not be aware of that. I'm pretty good in interviews and in staying out of trouble, like 99% of the time. But I, it's in conversation, one-on-one -on -one conversations that it's like, oh, did I just say that out loud? And oh, was that wise? No, it was not. But here's the thing. When I was living as a man, I had that same tendency. Nobody ever brought it up. I was going to ask you about that. Made all kinds of accommodation for it. It was just, oh, Paul's that way. Now, I don't get an inch. And you know who is the worst about it? Women. Women are far, far more critical of other men, of other women than they are men. Yeah. It, one of the statements you made. Men don't seem to care all that much. No, no. One of the statements that I wrote down that you either made in your book or the article, because I reread the article today. Women don't empower each other. You're right. No, you know, there's an interesting thing in that uh, article that you read. K.K. Otteson writes for the Washington Post, and she's also a photographer. And so I was with her in D.C. And the first day we did the interview, and the second day I came back for the photography. And I said that on the first day. I, I said women don't empower one another. And that to me has been just devastating and disappointing because there's nothing I enjoy more than empowering others. Uh, if you know the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram too. I mean, there's just nothing that makes me, brings me greater joy than 
seeing others succeed. That's why I love coaching for TED, because you take brilliant scientists who are awful speakers and you give them jazz hands. (laughs) (laughs) You make them great in front of a crowd. And I love every second of it. She said, oh, that's not my experience. My experience is that women do empower one another. And so the next day, as soon as I got there, she said, oh, I think I need to apologize to you. Why? And she said, well, I was talking to Madeline Albright last night, as one does, I guess. (laughs) She said, I was telling her what you were saying. And she said, oh, my goodness, yes. Don't you remember how I used to say all the time, there's a special place in hell that is reserved for women who do not empower one another? And she's like, oh, yeah, I've heard you say that. And so she said, so my apologies to you for that. She said, but in my industry, in journalism, it's not true. I think the experience of most women in journalism is that it is a little bit more of a level playing field. Wow, that's fantastic. I know, but there are plenty of other areas where that is in fact not the case. I'm working with a potential TED speaker right now who is a mining engineer, not an area. Uh, I do a lot of work with finance corporations, international banking, particularly wealth management. That is a very male-driven and very misogynistic world. And it is fascinating to see I was meeting with a group of leaders from a very large bank that has a large presence in the Western U.S. and also in South America. And I was talking to their wealth managers and they were, one of them asked me a question and said, you know, we, we, I I don't know what we're doing wrong because, you know, men tend to die first and after they die, their wives drop us. And I'm like, dudes, I mean, it's because you never dealt with her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You did what most North American men do and assume the husband was making all the decisions. So when he's no longer around, why would she say that to you? <laughs> yeah. And one of their senior VPs said, I have been trying to tell those guys that for decades. <laughs> so yeah, some industries are worse than others. Did they listen to you? Did they accept that? Um, no, no, mm. but I was well paid. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you who does listen to me. I do a lot of speaking for YPO organizations, young oh, yeah. presidents uh, organization. And so these are all CEOs. And I'd say the vast majority of them are very, very, they are all ears. They listen to me quite well. I'll go back now and answer the question you asked before, just to <laughs> tell you one specific story. So I, as a woman, was brought onto the board of a nonprofit, and we have a large national conference and had hired a new CEO. And the CEO was not a public speaker at all. And we were discussing in a board meeting, should we have her do a keynote at our large conference? And I said, well, she's not a public speaker. Not really sure if that's a great idea. Might be better if we just interview her, in which case I'd be happy to interview her to do the interviewing. I said, but, you know, if you want her to speak, I'll be happy to coach her. At which point, a powerful white male in the room said, well, if we're going to do that, why don't we hire a real coach? Ooh. <laughs> now, there were several women in the room who knew my story. None of them said a word. And so what I wanted to say was, okay, I've done four TED Talks, count them four. I'm a speaker's ambassador for TED. I'm a speaker's coach for the largest TEDx in the world. I've taught speech in three universities, two in the United States, one in Europe. Tell me what part of that does not make me a real coach. But of course, by then I'd learned, you don't say that because, well, now you're that woman. And so I said nothing. And it was an LGBTQ plus organization. So it was, in fact, a gay, uh, white, powerful man who are, in fact, in my experience, in my experience, I can only speak for myself. There are no statistics on this that I'm aware of. One of the worst groups in terms of really being misogynistic. Wow. And again, I could I could get in trouble for that. That's only been my own experience. I do not know that that is verified. I get that. I understand that. I'm I'm just I'm just fascinated. I think I've never really thought about being a transgender woman having the experience until I read your article, having the experience of being a male and then going to a female and having just like the experience of the, the social experience of it or, or whatever you want to call it, but just having privilege or having being, like you said, being able to say whatever you want. And people are like, oh, that's just the way he is. And then if you're a woman who says just you just rattle stuff off, you're a little curt with people or whatever, you don't mean anything by it, but you're just saying what's in your head. It's like, oh, she's a bitch. Uh, exactly. Right. You will relate to this. I can remember sitting down with a, a person in my organization who wasn't there very long. And I sat him in my office and I said, you know, my experience is when a male boss 
is aggressive with goals and holds people accountable and is demanding of work ethic, that they're a strong leader. But when a woman boss shows up and is aggressive with goals and aggressive with accountability and is a str- you know strong in their conviction, that they're a bitch. And this young man's head started nodding yes as soon as I said that. And I realized that, of course, he wasn't going to work in my organization because I was the leader of it and I was a female. But it was just so incredible. That was the day for me that I realized that, yes, as a female CEO who has a strong, aggressive, assertive personality, I am a bitch. Yeah, the myth is that men are far less emotional at work than women. The truth is that men are far more emotional at work than women. And that is because their primary emotion they're expressing is anger. Yeah. And it's acceptable from a man. It's not acceptable from a woman. And that's the reality. How do you see yourself as a leader now, Paula? Do you see yourself different? I mean, obviously, you said that you've had to change your ways to lead in a different fashion, uh, to maybe not speak all the time and hold some of your words in? It's a good question. I don't know that I've been asked that, at least not recently. I have a very close friend who has been in very powerful positions. Uh, she was, I think, what you would call the uh, Undersecretary of Health in New Zealand. She was in charge of all women's health in um, British Columbia. She's held similar positions in Australia. She's about my age. And I've gone through a lot of real struggles and trials in leadership over the last uh, really 18 months, particularly. And she's like, oh, my dear, you, you might be my age. But when it comes to learning how to navigate the world of women, you're 13. <laughs> you, you really do not know how to navigate what you watch your granddaughters do all the time, of which is to make all kinds of mistakes as they figure out how to find their own voice and their own footing in the world. And I miss that. And I do not feel, actually, that I am as good a leader as I was as a man. I would hope that I become a better leader than I was as a man. And I would not have answered that question this way two years ago. I'm not even sure I would have answered the question this way when my book first came out. But the last year and a half have shown me that a lot of those, again, what I would call abiding shadows that did not negatively affect my leadership as a man do as a woman. Uh, Can you tell us about those, Paula? Probably a little too raw at this point to talk about that. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. No, thank you for that vulnerability. Yeah, thank you for that. Paula, you mentioned, or I I read in one of the articles or somewhere when I was researching you that you felt like we raise people, parents raise their daughters to be perfect. And rather than raising them to be perfect, raising them to be persistent would be a better route to take. Can you speak on that from your perspective? Yeah, we teach our sons to be confident and we teach our daughters to be perfect and we think we're doing them a favor because, you know, life's going to be harder for you. And boys mature later. And so it's important to be teaching our sons to be confident. So, you know, it's understandable. And it actually works through the education system all the way through the end of college. It works. And so you end up with a lot of females as valedictorian in their class, both high school and college, because they've been taught to be perfect. But then you get out into your first corporate job and a, a position opens up in the company and it has, let's say, five requirements. And you're a woman and you see the posting and you think to yourself, oh, I don't have all five. I've only got four. I, I'm not perfect. I can't, cannot apply for that position. And guys, because we've taught them to be confident, the guy looks at that posting. He's got two of the five requirements and he thinks, I got this. <laughs> he applies for the job and gets the job, even though he's exactly half as qualified as the woman who did not. I mean, it happens all the time. You're talking about me right here. (laughs) I am a perfectionist. I'm in recovery of some sort, but she still peeks her head out. (laughs) It is so... It sucks. ...damaging to say that or teach that to our daughters instead of teaching them to be persistent. And it's not just parents who do it. It's our entire culture that does it. And that perfectionism, sometimes it isn't even just about qualities that we have or acumen that we have. It's about our looks. It's about how we dress, how we have our hair. Are we thin? Are we 
pretty? Are we not pretty? Do we have the right makeup on? Do we have the right clothes? Did you wear the same outfit yesterday? It's like the judge is so much more prominent in our heads. Have you had any personal experiences around those kinds of things? The judge of women or society on women versus the judge of men. Maybe you might have something around that to share with us. Oh, this is a sad story. All right, no sad stories, only happy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, this is a sad story, but it, not not because of, of um, it's sad because of the way it ultimately turned out, but it is a very apropos story. So I've been invited to the White House four times in the last uh, 15 months. I was involved in doing surrogate work for President Biden, and I spoke for the inaugural prayer service. And so I've had a couple of chances to be at very large events that, you know, they don't tell you, they don't invite you to like, you know, five days ahead of time. And I'm trying to get from Colorado to, to DC. The last one was the um, Elton John concert on the White House lawn, which everyone said was absolutely wonderful. And I just couldn't work without to get there. It was going to cost me like $2,000 to get there. And I'm not really an Elton John fan. <laughs> but, you know, it'd be fun. It would have been a fun thing to do. I would like to have been there. And so, yeah, a couple, three events have been like that. But I was invited to a much smaller gathering uh, during Pride Month at the White House. And initially, I chose not to go because I had nothing to wear. And I'm extremely uncomfortable when I have to dress up instead of down. I live in Colorado. Dressing up here means nicer jeans. <laughs> you know, it's a very different kind of culture. And it was uh, business attire, and I wasn't going to go. And one of my co-workers was like, you're going, let's go to the store. And she couldn't go with me, Kathy, I'm going with me. I ended up getting stuff, but I was mortified that, uh, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't want to meet the president wearing this, but okay, I will. I ended up not getting there because my flight was canceled, oh. but I almost didn't go in the first place just because I didn't want to have to worry about what I was going to wear. Would that story have been true if you were a man? Oh, it's simple as can be as a guy. You have, you have a tux, you have a suit when you need it. But nine times out of 10, I had a pair of khaki pants, a blue Brooks Brothers sport coat and Brooks Brothers button down collar, light blue, usually shirts. I mean, same thing over. And that was my uniform. I wore it all the time. And you can't do that. As a woman, I have closets and closets of clothes because if you wear something too often, people will notice and women will judge you. Yes. <laughs> Yes, they will. And the men won't notice anyway. Oh, God, they have no idea what you're wearing. They could care less. No, no, unless, you know, you've got some nice cleavage showing and then they'd remember <laughs> that. Be like, oh, she's wearing that shirt again that shows her cleavage. Oh, that's my favorite shirt. <laughs> we have a sizable online audience at our church. And um, one of the men watching reached out to one of my co-pastors and after the service one week and said, I just, I need to, you know, I mean, I'm, Paula had um, cleavage like uh, in the service. And, you know, the, my co-pastor was like, uh, well, so do I. And <laughs> so do, does Christy, the other co-pastor. And so why would Paula not be able to do that? In that case, she was convinced, and I think she's right, that it was really, it bothered him that he was attracted to that. Ah. Uh, if you're a trans woman and a straight man is attracted to you, it is a dangerous spot to be in. Mm. Wow. Interesting. Speaking of your church, you talked about it briefly when you were doing, you were telling us, you know, where have you, what you've done and where you've been. And I think you said post-evangelical church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that mean if once people are like, you know what, I think I need to move on from the conservative constraints of evangelical church. This one is a more progressive church. Uh, yes. You would have a lot of churches in the United States. Uh, actually, over 50% of Christians, not churches, but Christians in the United States are LGBTQ plus affirming. Most people don't realize that. But the churches that are LGBTQ plus affirming are primarily mainline Protestant churches like 
uh, the Presbyterian Church of the USA, the Episcopal Church of the USA in most parts of the country, uh, the American Baptist Church, not the Southern Baptist Church, um, the United Church of Christ, the United Methodist Church, at least 50% of the United Methodist Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which is not evangelical. Those are all open and affirming uh, denominations where the vast majority of churches are very small and dying and old. So if you go over one of those churches, pretty much everybody will be over 70, 75 years of age. Evangelical churches tend to skew much, much younger. And one of the things that makes American like even Americans like evangelical churches is they are not a part of a denomination. They are all independent churches. And they also have a very contemporary program. Uh, so to put it very crassly, uh, and I actually don't think this is a pejorative term, but their church services are a great show. It's uh, 58 minutes, 62 minutes of great speaking, great music, great children's programming. Uh, it is excellent. So if you have, in fact, that type of programming and you have that polity, that church governance where your church is independent, that's usually an evangelical church. And those churches tend to be healthier. They tend to grow faster if, if, if you want to see uh, growth as a sign of health. But let's say you're in one of those churches and you, you cannot abide by what they're teaching theologically, which would be increasingly true for more and more Americans. Where do you go? Well, that's where you would seek out a post-evangelical church because they have the same church governance, the same polity. They're independent. They're not beholden to a denomination that tells them what they can and cannot do. They also have great speaking and contemporary music, which people just love, but their theology is much more liberal. Theology is pretty much the same as you would find in those other denominations, I mentioned. Therefore, they are all LGBTQ plus affirming. Uh, the vast majority of them would not teach uh, what's known as the substitutionary atonement. Uh, they would not teach uh, that blood sacrifice was necessary for sins to be forgiven. Blood sacrifice? Most... Evangelical churches do teach the substitutionary atonement, that God had no choice but to punish us because we were not perfect, and that the only way that we don't get punished is that Jesus accepted the punishment for us. So Jesus was the blood sacrifice. Okay, got it, got it. I thought you meant there would have to be a current sacrifice. Um, no. Okay, got it. Thank goodness. If you take a look at the, at the history of mankind, you know, 2,000 years before Christ and maybe 5,000 years before Christ, it was common to have a human sacrifice in religion. And then from that point on until about the time of Christ, you had animal sacrifices, which, of course, would have been the Jewish religion at that point in time as well. But then once you get into the uh, the time after Christ, you, you find that even animal sacrifices was no longer seen as acceptable. But much of the Christian world outside of the Franciscans and a few more liberal Protestant groups, much of the Christian world still teaches that Jesus had to die for our sins. Otherwise, we wouldn't get to heaven. little theology lesson for you there. Yeah, that's where I grew up with. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you for that. <laughs> yeah, and our churches do not teach that. Oh, that's really interesting. We we would teach that that God loves you just as you are. No changes demanded. No, no sacrifice necessary. Uh, that. I was looking for that as a Catholic, as a young girl in a Catholic church. I was wondering where that was. I I, did, I knew it had to be out there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and then people say, well, then why did Jesus come? Jesus came to show solidarity with us in our suffering. That's why Jesus came. Uh, Jesus came to show us that when the day is done, love wins. That's why Jesus came. Not because he had to be sacrificed so God wouldn't send us to hell. I like it. Paula, I want to ask you, so, you know, Kara and I are looking at a beautiful woman who um, is full of life and full of good and full of compassion and empathy and all of the things that we want to encourage and empower women to be. And you were married for how long? Um, well, we consider ourselves to have been married for 40 years. So we actually celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary just two weeks ago. But the last 10 years, we, we don't consider ourselves to be married. So you told me you got married at 21? 21 and 19. Mm -hmm. My oldest child is 46, and then the next one is 43, and the youngest is 42. That's great. And you have five grandchildren? Five granddaughters, all between 12 and 15. Well, one will be 15 in another couple of weeks. And you transitioned how many years ago? Actually, nine. Okay. I loved this. When I listened to the TED Talk with your son, I loved what your granddaughters called you, what they call you. Can you share share that with our listeners? Sure, yeah. It's D-R-A-M 
P-A-U-L-A, Graham Paula. Graham Paula. I love that. And they came up with that on their own. On their own. Um, Jonathan, my son's oldest daughter, Asha, came up with it. And we, I loved it because, uh, you know, Kathy's a grandma. It, it just wasn't right to call me grandma. So yeah, Graham Paula. And so it seems like from the outside looking in that although it was, you know, difficult or trying or unusual or whatever word, if there is a word to put on the transition, that everybody's kind of okay. Everyone's living life and everybody's... Yeah. Thank you for using that language. Everybody's okay. Everybody's not great. Everybody's okay. Everybody's good. But I think all of us would prefer that this had not been a necessary part of our lives. I have a brother who's gay and he often says that, you know, it's not not what I would have chosen for myself, right? It's not the life I would have chosen for myself because it's hard. Right. It's hard. Yep, exactly. But it's the life, it's the life that you need to live to be true to yourself. Well, and you right. I believe that the call toward authenticity is sacred and holy and for the greater good. I mean, I that's language I use all the time. It's in my the dedication page in my book, I say to all who believe the call toward authenticity is sacred and holy and for the greater good. And I didn't say it was easy. Right. I mean, Karen and I so believe in that with you. We believe in that with you. Yeah. What what if you could go back to your four-year-old self? What what would you tell her? I'd say it's gonna be okay. Just trust the flow. Trust the flow, it will be okay. I have a hard time saying that to myself even now. I have a hard time trusting the flow. I like to engineer results. <laughs> I'm you know what? I'm with you. So <laughs> I'd like to control stuff too. And it it's, it's a farce. I really, yeah. It's, it really is. I mean, there's so little you really have the capacity to control. You know, I, I love Rilke's poem, The Man Watching. If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things are by some immense storm, then we could become strong too and not need names. When we win, it's with small things, and the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean, the angel who appeared before the wrestler of the Old Testament when the wrestler's sinews grew long like metal strings, he felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music. Whoever was beaten by that angel, my favorite part of the poem, whoever was beaten by that angel, though often the angel, God, simply declined the fight. Whoever was beaten by that angel, though often the angel simply declined the fight. But whoever was beaten by that angel went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh and that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that person. This is how they grow, by being defeated decisively by greater beings. Oh, I like that. That's real. That's uh, Rilke's poem, The Man Watching. Wow. I, le- I left out the whole first section of it. It's a long poem. It's a great poem. That is how we grow, but it's also humbling and frightening. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I, I love that notion where I started the poem, that... Um, if only we would let ourselves be dominated as things are by some immense storm, then we could become strong too and not need names. The names is the differentiating yourself from other humans. Mm. I think about uh, living for so long on the south shore of Long Island, and I ran every day out to the bay. And the trees on the bay had grown permanently facing the northeast because that's how they survived and they thrived. They yielded to the forces around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Paula, from one woman to another, I want to tell you that what other women think of you is none of your business. <laughs> and if they're judging you for your clothing, it's none of your business. And if they're judging you for anything about you, it's none of your business. I, I heard this quote that there's three types of business. Your business, their business, and God's business. And even if someone likes you or doesn't like you, it's none of your business. I like that. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. Is there anything else that you think our listeners who might be relating to your story need to know? Yeah, um, uh, Rilke came to mind, but Mary Oliver keeps coming to mind now. Uh, So I'll I'll close with that. It's called The Journey. One day you knew what you had to do and began, and the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. One day, you knew what you had to do and began with the voices around you. 
kept shouting their bad advice that the whole house began to tremble. And you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. Mend my life. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough in a wild night, and the road was filled with fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, as you left their voices behind, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, a new voice, a new voice, a new voice, voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Mm. It's Mary Oliver's The Journey. I love that. That's beautiful. Thank you. Paula, how can people find you? PaulaStoneWilliams.com. You can pick up my book at pretty much any bookstore at this point. As a woman, what I learned about power, sex, and the patriarchy after I transitioned. Chapters 16, 17, and 18 are filled with what we talked about in terms of the difference between experiencing life as a man and as a woman. First 14 chapters are pretty much my story. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story. This was, and, and, you know, spending so much time with us. We really appreciate it. This has been wonderful. Well, I think we'll call it serendipitous because I had something scheduled for this evening with canceled and you had uh, an opening that popped up. So yeah, glad I could be with you. It's a pleasure, Paula. Thank you so much. Thank you. We hope this podcast has inspired and empowered you to overcome what might be holding you back from living your best life. If you love this podcast, please share it with a woman you know who needs a little empowerment. Now go out in the world and be bold, be brave, be you. Perfectly imperfect you. With love, Kara and Patty. But I wonder what would happen if you say what you want to say. Should we start this? Yeah, yeah, we should just start this. Mixed and edited by Desmond McNeese for We Mixed It, LLC. Go to whatsoundsawesome.com. All right, strike it, Des. Strike it from the record.